All right, well, good morning, church. So we're going to be back in Genesis this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 37. Before we start Genesis chapter 7, let's rewind back to Genesis 15 really quick. If we rewind back to Genesis 15, uh, the Lord gives a promise to Abraham. Actually, it was Abram at the time. And he tells them in, in, in chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, he tells them, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This was a promise from God to Abraham, to his descendants, obviously. Abraham himself wouldn't live to see it completely fulfilled. He wouldn't even live to see it started. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of them would live to see it completely fulfilled. Not completely, right? But yet it would be fulfilled nonetheless. And this, this morning, and when, we, when we're going into chapter 37, this is how it starts. That promise that was given back to Abraham back then in chapter 15 this is how it starts. This is the start of how they eventually end up as sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And that land, of course, will be Egypt. And 400 years later, when the pharaohs no longer knew Joseph, it would be Moses, of course, who's going to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And then, indeed, they would come out with great possessions. The Bible tells us that they plunder the Egyptians. So this is the start. This is our introduction into the life of Joseph. It's a remarkable story. Joseph's story in the book of Genesis is one-fourth of the book. Right? We've been over a lot of people f- since the beginning of Genesis. Right? Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Joseph takes up one quarter of the book of Genesis. Like I said, it's a remarkable story. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 37, the whole chapter. This morning. So starting in verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, 
Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And the man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? And he said, I am seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where are they pastoring the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to, to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. But when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers, and he said, The boy is gone, and where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered the goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and... And brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, This is, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph, without doubt, is torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins. And he mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for how powerful it is and, and how encouraging it is and how it's applicable to the events that we're going through right now and, and just the picture that is there that we see of your great love for us and, how, and, and your plans for us, how you have all things worked out. We just thank you for that, Lord. We just give today over to you. We put it in your hands. We pray, Lord, that your words be spoken. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some will teach that Joseph is a type of Christ. Matter of fact, you can do a search on types of Christ, you know, that we see in the Old Testament. You're going to find over a hundred different references easily for Joseph and, uh, you know, for him being a, a type of Christ. Warren Wearsby calls Joseph a rich illustration of, of Jesus Christ. And we do see a picture in the life of Joseph. We do see a picture of Jesus in the life of Joseph. Without a doubt, there are many similarities. For example, Joseph was beloved by his father, and he was obedient to his father's will, yet he was rejected by his own, as Christ was. He would be falsely accused, and he would be unjustly punished, as Christ was. He was stripped of his tunic and sold for silver, like Jesus was. So there's a lot of similarities that you can see between Joseph and Christ. Now there's also a prophetic picture that's being painted here 
that we're just seeing it, the, the beginnings in a sense of the painting. You don't actually see it completely painted until we get through Genesis and even into Exodus. But there's a prophetic picture being painted here that you should be aware of, and it's a picture of the seven-year tribulation and God's plan for Israel through the tribulation. Remember, the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble, right? So the tribulation, you know, is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. And we see that picture here in Joseph and his family. Of course, we know Jacob, his name is Israel. God renamed him Israel. And so Joseph as this type of Christ, rejected by his own family, and yet during this seven-year period of great trouble with this famine that's coming, it's a famine that went over the whole world, as we'll find out as we continue through Genesis. Who was it that was going to save Israel? Joseph, right? And not just that, but Joseph also during this time took a bride, and it happens to be a Gentile bride. Her name was Azaneth. You can find that in Genesis 41. And he married her before the seven years of famine started. So where was his bride during the seven years of famine? Well, she's never mentioned. She's nowhere to be found. And that's a picture of the rapture, right? The, the church, the bride of Christ, is taken out first before the tribulation. So that picture is being painted as well as we go through this story of Joseph. Right? So we do have a picture of Christ. We have a picture of the church in here being removed before the rapture. We have this picture of a tribulation that's coming that Israel is going to have to go through. But also should remind you, of course, that Joseph is not Jesus. And that should be evident right away as we start the story uh, because he falls short in many areas. Right? He seems at the start here to be sort of an annoying little tattletale. Because it says right at the beginning of the chapter that uh, uh, he brought a bad report of the brothers to their father. So it was almost like that Joseph was the one keeping an eye on all the other brothers. And if they did anything wrong, he was the one who came back to the dad. You won't believe what they're doing now, dad. I've got photo proof, right? So, so he seems to be this annoying little tattletale. And he also has a lack of tact in an area that seems to get him into trouble, right? He's a little self-centered. And what I mean by that is a little prideful. And, and because of that, in, in what way, it's because he's kind of centered on what on himself. When he's talking about the dreams he's, that he has, for example, he never really considers about how they sound to his brothers or how that comes across to his family. Right? He's really only interested about how those dreams are kind of great for him. Okay? So he's a, he, he's, he has a, uh, you know, uh, a lack of tact in that area that gets him into trouble. To maybe be a little more considerate about what he's saying and how it comes across. Not that it mattered. The dreams were real. The dreams were true. And the dreams came true. So it wasn't like he was wrong. You know? But this pride, that came, this pride that, that he had came from the fact that he was his father's favorite son, right? So there was this favoritism that had been shown to him by his father. Now, you might have thought that Jacob w wouldn't have played favorites because, you know, look what Jacob came from, right? You know, the, the relationship that Jacob came from, 
that played into his own family relationships. Jacob was Rebecca's favorite. Esau was Isaac's favorite. He came from this relationship where the family already played favorites. He saw how that worked out for his own life. You wouldn't necessarily think that he'd be playing favorites with his own son, but there are some things that you need to remember and understand, understand why, why Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved his other, his other brothers. One, he says, he is the son of my old age. Now, that doesn't just mean that he had him when he was old, okay? Because it can also be translated in the Hebrew, he is the son of old age, meaning that, that Joseph was wise beyond his years. He was more mature in a way that the other brothers weren't. And, and Jacob saw that in him. He's like, he has more of a level head on him than even some of his older brothers do. Right? It's a reference to Joseph's maturity as compared to his brother. And also remember that Joseph was the firstborn from Rachel. And Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved the most. So, you factor that in with the fact that Jacob was already upset at a lot of the older brothers anyway, right? Because of like you know, Simeon and Levi for, for you know, uh, murdering Ham, Hamor and Shechem and wiping out all the males in that town. And for Reuben, for having relations with Bilhah, one, one of Jacob's wives, his concubine, right? So he was already upset with a lot of the older brothers anyway. But Joseph was the firstborn to Rachel, and Rachel was who he truly loved. So Joseph lo Jacob loved, I, I always get the name, you'll, you'll hear me, I'll be, I'll be calling Joseph Jacob and Jacob Joseph all the way through. I always tangle up those names as much as I talk about them. But, but Jacob loved Joseph so much that he gives him this coat of many colors. That's often how it's described. Until you get into the Hebrew and realize they really don't know what the word means and they can't figure out exactly you know, a, a true translation for it. And it really probably just means a coat with long sleeves. All right? But, but that was important. That was very important because most people didn't wear coats with long sleeves especially the blue-collar workers, pretty much like all the other sons. They didn't want coats that, because it, it's, a long, it's a long tunic, and it had long sleeves, and it went down to your ankles. And if you were to wear a coat like that when you're working out in the field, it would get in your way. So they didn't wear coats like this. The people that wore coats like this were the people in, uh, in charge, the ones in charge of the workers, the people of seniority and stuff like that, right? But we also have to remember that it's just a coat, right? It doesn't have magical powers. It's just a coat. It may have been colorful. It may not have been colorful. It's really just a plot device to help move things forward. It was just a coat, really. The coat is actually not even the primary focus of the chapter, despite how we always bring it out, especially for like Sunday school classes and stuff, you know, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. It's just, it's just a coat. But it was a coat that signified that his father loved him more than his brothers. It was a coat that signified that um, his, his favor, his standing, his birthright. Basically, by wearing this coat, what Jacob was saying was, Joseph, as far as he was concerned, was worthy of the birthright. None of the older brothers were worthy of it. Right? And so because of this favoritism that was shown to him by his fathers, it tells us, that his brothers were jealous of him, right? You can go to Acts, Acts chapter 7, verse 9. It says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, right? We, we know 
that his brothers were jealous of him. So you have Jacob, Israel, who himself was born into a troubled family. And now he's the father over a troubled family. And he has sons from four different mothers, right? Twelve sons, four different mothers. And all these sons are living and working together. So as you might expect, there was probably a lot of rivalry. There was probably a lot of competition. Dinner time must have been fun, right? As you can imagine. But the brothers, they hated him. They hated Joseph. And their hate grew. And it all started with the fact that he was Jacob's favorite son. Right? It says in verse 4, as a matter of fact, that they hated him so much that they could not speak peacefully to him. Which just which is on a basic level just means they could not think of one kind word to say to Joseph. That's how much they hated him. That word for peacefully in the Hebrew, that word there is, the, is shalom. Okay, so you know shalom. Shalom is a word of greeting. Shalom is a word of, uh, not just a greeting, they say it, you know, uh, both coming and going, right? It's wishing peace to the person as you come or as you leave. And so basically his brothers could not give him a shalom. They, they couldn't even shalom him, right? They, had, they did not wish him any peace in any way, right? They hated him. They hated him. You know, Romans twelve eighteen tells us, as it, as it is possible, as far as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, it says, live at peace with all. This is something the brothers couldn't do. Right? The nation of, of Israel, early in its infancy, had lots of issues. They, they did not get along very well with each other or with surrounding nations, which shows a lot to their upbringing um, with Jacob and what he went through. But they couldn't think of one nice word to say to their brother Joseph. But it wasn't just that. It was also that Joseph was a dreamer. Right? Now, it, scientists who studied dreams will tell us that, you know, of course, we dream every night. I don't remember who I was talking to the other day. It was one of the kids, and they were like, I never dream. I think it was Daniel. He's not here today. But he was telling me, I never dream. I never have dreams, right? How old is Daniel? Nine, right? So nine-year-old who never dreams. I find that hard to imagine, but it's possible. Maybe, you know, he never dreams. But, you know, we're told we dream every night. We dream in pictures. We dream in technicolor. We dream in black and white. Right? I, don't, I don't know how you dream. Everybody's dreams are different. They say our dreams are often the product of our waking moments, which means often what we go through during the day is what influences our dreams at night. Or sometimes it's even just a suggestion, right? You, someone will just say something to you during the day, and that will linger with you. And when you go to bed at night, that is what permeates your dreams. You're just thinking of that thing over and over. You have all these weird and crazy, bizarre dreams compared to what, you know, that come from what you went through during the day or what someone said to you or stuff like that. You know, the reason they say that your dreams are bizarre and weird, and I don't know if your dreams are bizarre and weird. Maybe you have normal dreams, <laughs> right? But the reason they say that your dreams are bizarre and weird is because of your frontal lobe or whatever, the front part of your brain. During the day, this front part of your brain is awake, okay? and it controls, it makes sense of the world that you're living in. It makes sense of what you're doing and what you're going through. It tells you, you know, the floor is supposed, to, the ceiling is supposed to be up there, and the floor is supposed to be down here, and the lights are supposed to come on, and it, it, it controls all this stuff, makes sense of everything for you. Well, when you go to bed at night, that front part of your brain shuts off, and, and then things just go weird, and that's how come they say you have weird dreams. It's because that front part of your brain that makes sense of everything shuts down when you sleep. And it can now, therefore, your brain starts combining things and events that normally wouldn't go together, which is why you find yourself, you know, flying or doing weird things that you've never done. You're in space and you're, you know, 
on stage with Elvis or whatever. I don't know what you're doing, but they say that you dream, you have a dream every 90 minutes while you're sleeping. And some people will even say you dream 100 to 200 dreams a night. And I don't know about that. The only thing I know is that in the morning, I remember none of it. That's the only thing I know. I don't remember a single thing when I wake up. I'm, I'm, I know I had to dream, but I don't remember a single thing when I wake up. I remember none of them. But people ask today, does God speak through dreams? Well, it's obvious in the Bible that God speaks through dreams. Does God still speak through dreams? Yes, he does. But here's the thing to remember. Is every dream you dream from God? No. No, it's not. Right? Be careful of that. It'll get you in a lot of trouble. Right? So just remember this. Anything God tells you in a dream will not go against what he told you in his word. Right? If you have a dream and you think that dream is from God and you think God is trying to tell you something, prayerfully examine it and carefully examine it through his word. And remember, right, God is not a God of confusion. He's going to make himself clearly understood. So just bring it to the word. If it doesn't line up with what the word said, guess what? That dream didn't come from God. Yeah. So Joseph was a dreamer. And sometimes we think of dreamers are these, these kids that just stare off into space all day. Right? They're just dreamers. They just, they're, they, they're not focused on the here and now, quite frankly. Their mind is years ahead, thinking of other things that are going on and what's going to happen. You know, they're, they're just constantly in a dream state. But Joseph was actually receiving dream from God. He received more than one. He received two here in the chapter. And his brothers hated him because of the dream, right? So the first dream that he had that they hated him for, it, he dreamed that they were out in the field binding sheaves, like binding wheat, more than likely, in the field. And, and his sheaf arose, which means it stood up. And all the other sheaves, the brothers, came over and bowed down. And the brothers didn't like that. What I find interesting about the dreams is that they knew exactly what the dream signified when he, t when he told them about the dreams. They knew exactly what the dream meant in the sense of it meant that we are going to bow down to Joseph. They understood that. Now, obviously, they don't know the whole context of the dreams. They don't understand the whole picture concerning what's going to lead up to that moment or why they're in that situation where they're going to be bowing down to their brother. They didn't seem interested in even finding out what it meant. They didn't want to try to, you know, prayerfully discern what the dreams meant. They didn't want to come to God and figure it out. They just like, what do you mean we're going to bow down to you? There's no way we're going to bow down to you, little brother. And that was it. They just, that was it. They hated him, right? Father's favorite son, and you're just dreamer telling us that you're going to rule over us and we're going to bow down. You're ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it says they hated him even more. So their hate just continued to grow. And it's also relevant, of course, that that first dream he has involves wheat because the ultimate position of status over his brothers is going to have to do with food. And he will be providing them food, right, during the famine. But I think Joseph just, like lots of children, just w was excited to tell his family about what he dreamed, right? About this vision that he had. I had a dream. You want to hear about it? Because we get that in our house, right? It may, it may not be a dream exactly, but kids get excited about something. They want to tell their brothers and their sisters about it. Right? So one will be out, you know, on the couch reading the book, or one might be gaming or, or something like that. And whoever's excited about whatever it is that they want to show, they run to the other kids and they're like, I want to show you this. I want to talk to you about this. I Let me show you. This is really exciting. And usually the response that they get is, no, get away from me. Right? That's usually the response that they get. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear about it. Quit bugging me. 
So this is a normal sort of you know, family thing about the way that these things, it's part of the normal family dynamic with siblings anyway. You know, you're just the annoying little brother, get out of here. Right? But, they, but Joseph's brothers hated them even more, you know? And then he had another dream. Now, I don't know how wise it was for him to go tell his brothers about the second dream since they weren't really receptive to the first dream. But it didn't stop him. He went and told his brothers about the second dream too, right? Maybe he didn't understand that his brothers hated him. Maybe he just thought, they're, oh, they're just being, you know, typical brothers. They're, but this second dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him, that's a picture of, the, of Israel. Not only is it a picture of Israel, it's a picture of the nation of Israel. When you go to Revelation 12.1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and had a crown of 12 stars on her, on her head. That same imagery that we see here in Genesis 37 is also in Revelation 12, and it's a picture of the nation of Israel. So he's seeing this picture, right? And the sun, the moon, and the stars are, are bowing down to him. And this one he also tells to his father, as well. He's like, man, you're not going to believe this dream. Ooh, you thought that one about the sheaves was exciting. Listen to this one, guys. Right? And so, but, but what the picture represented was not only his brothers bowing down to him, but now his father bowing down to him as well. And, and his mom, his mom's, right? As it could be. Because his actual biological mom had passed away. But they just continue to hate him. They're just more jealous of him. They're like, this is ridiculous. There is no way. Even his, even his father rebukes him. Right? You really think we're going to bow down to you? But at least Jacob had the sense to ponder this. It tells us at the end that he held on to that. He's like thinking about it. I'm not going to dismiss it outright. I'm going to pay attention. You know, I'm going to ponder on this for a while. Why did, why did Joseph get this dream? That's a better than rejecting it outright. Like I said, Joseph, Jacob, the brothers—they couldn't see the dreams in their proper context. Right? They're only seeing a small picture of God's large plan. They didn't understand exactly what they meant. They didn't understand why or in what situation these things were actually going to come in place. They didn't seem to be interested in even finding out. Quite frankly, they just rebuked him. They just said, no, it's ridiculous. There's no way we're going to do that. Like I said, even his father rebuked him. But the crazy thing, of course, that we understand, that we know, is that the dreams came true, right? The dreams were from God. They were from God. But the brothers, it would seem, already had their hearts hardened. They already had their hearts hardened to any words that Joseph might tell them. They weren't interested in listening and they especially didn't want to listen to something they really clearly didn't understand. So instead of trying to possibly discern a meaning for the dreams, or, you know, like I said, prayerfully look into it, they just decided to kill Joseph. That was their answer. Their, their hearts got hardened. It tells us when your hearts get hardened, um, if you look at the parable of the seeds, uh, you know, the, the seeds that... Uh, can't, that don't understand, that have a lack of understanding about God's word, allows the evil one to come in. And as far as the brothers were concerned, that's pretty much what was happening. The evil one, because of their hardened hearts and their lack of understanding, the evil one had come in. And they're just thinking about murder. Right? And so, 
the brothers are off pasturing the flock, and we get to the point now where the father wants to, uh, to send uh, Joseph to go find the brothers. Now, the brothers are 70 miles away <laughs> pasturing the flock, and I kind of think that they're probably 70 miles away so that their brother won't bother them. Right? If we pasture the flock 70 miles away, there's going to be a less chance of him coming to annoy us. And also, we can get away with stuff without him tattling on us, and dad won't find out, right? So that's you know, one of my thoughts about why they were so far away. But they're near Shechem, which is interesting because, remember, Shechem is the place where the two older brothers murdered all the men and then took all the women and children and plundered the whole town and stuff like that. So it's interesting how we continue to hang out in places where we had past problems and the places where we were influenced and, and harmed, in a sense, by worldly influences where we continue to go back to and hang out in those places where they should have just left and walked away but given the chance to go right back to that same place, the brothers do, and continue to hang out. And Dothan is where they are, which means two cisterns or two wells. That's what the, the name of that place means. And, so, and that is also a picture, just so you know, of the nation of Israel wandering far from home. When you go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. Right? One, they have forsaken me. And two... They have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's what they throw Joseph in, actually, is a cistern that's empty, that can hold no water. And they have forsaken, actually, the fountain of living waters, which is God. And they are basically digging wells that can hold no water for themselves. And that's a picture, that's what we're seeing here. So their jealousy of Joseph grows into hate. Hate grows into conspiracy to commit murder, right? first-degree murder. They're all ready to, to kill him. They see him coming. Now, how do they recognize him from a distance? Well, probably because of his coat, right? because he's still wearing it. It's not an easy coat to get off, by the way, because it's not like it has zippers or buttons. He literally would put it on, put his arms up, and it would come down over his head. And when they pull it off him, that's how they have to pull it off him, too. You can't just unbutton it and take it off. Right? And they say, oh, here comes the dreamer. As in, you know, Joseph's not good for anything else. He's just a dreamer. Well, we'll see what becomes of, of his dreams, they say. Let's kill him when he gets here, right? Without, I mean, their intent is they're, put, in a sense, putting Joseph's dreams to the test. Let's see how well his dreams turn out for him, right? When he comes over here, instead of us bowing down to him, let's just kill him. And if it wasn't for Reuben, they probably would have done that. But Reuben, who is the actual firstborn, stops them from murdering him entirely, right? He's like, no, no, let's not kill him, right? And they actually listen to Reuben because he is the firstborn. He has some authority among the brothers because he's the eldest. He has a little bit, of, he's, a, he's somewhat of a wise counsel, you could say, among the brothers, but in, uh, he, he's trying to please both sides. He's trying not for Joseph to be killed and not and still let his brothers do something against him. He's hoping to come back and actually rescue Joseph after the fact. Why don't you guys just throw him in the well, right? And then when they're gone, he'll come back and pull him out of the well and let him go, right? But of course, when he comes back, they'd already sold him off. So he helped spare his life. But then after that, since he was unable to stop them from selling them off, he helped the brothers deceive their father into thinking that Joseph was killed by a fierce animal. Right? So his, only, his wisdom only went so far. So they do. They throw him into this empty pit, this cistern. And then they sit down and they have lunch. <laughs> That's how much they cared about the fate of their brother. 
who was just like, hey, we throw them in the pit. All right, let's sit down and have something to eat. You hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. What did you bring? Right? And so they just leave them in the pit. And it's, it's Judah, right, the line of which Christ will come through. It's Judah who says, hey, here come the Ishmaelites, our cousins. They're our cousins, right? Here come the Ishmaelites. We're not going to profit anything if we just kill him. Why don't we sell him instead? And we talked about when on Easter, we're talking about how Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and 30 pieces of silver was the price that you would get if someone accidentally killed your slave. Which, so it's not a lot of money. Matter of fact, for the most part, it's an insult. When people, you know, when they offered 30 pieces of silver to Judas to betray Christ, that was an insult to Judas. It was an insult to Jesus because they're saying he's only worth the price of a slave that we accidentally killed. Well, that's the same thing that's going on here. The only reason that it's 20 pieces of silver instead of 30 is that because Joseph was only 17. And there's actually an age range during the the prices. You can find this. uh, It's in uh, Leviticus 27. You can find the, the, the prices based on age. And because he was over five, but he uh, but he wasn't over 20 yet. He's only worth 20 pieces of silver. Had he been 21, he would have got 30. Okay, you can find that Leviticus 27. So they sell him off. And they make some money out of it. Right? And then Reuben comes back and he's gone. It's like, you know, oh no, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to tell dad? So they come up with this plan, of course. And Jacob, who himself was once a deceiver, and Jacob, who himself was a liar, and Jacob, who had this sort of past himself, is yet once again deceived by his sons about the life of his favorite son. And they would keep this deception up for over 20 years, never telling their father that he was actually alive, that they hadn't killed him, that they had just sold him off into slavery. So in a sense, the cruelty that they had towards their brother so the cruelty towards the son was also directed to the father. And the fact that they held this deception for over 20 years. And also all the sons and daughters say it rose to comfort Jacob as he is lamenting over the loss of his son. Matter of fact, what does he say? He says, I'm going to go down to Sheol in mourning. He's like, leave me alone, right? I don't want to feel better. I'm going to go down to the grave this way. But all the sons and daughters rise to comfort him, which is probably strange because of how insincere it was, at least from the son's point of view. Because as far as Jacob was concerned, Joseph was dead. But yet Joseph is sold to Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard in Egypt, and Joseph is exactly where God wants him to be, which is just an amazing start to an amazing story about how God is going to use Joseph. Now you're thinking to yourself, what does this all mean for us? I mean, yes, there's a clear picture in here for Israel. And this is used a lot in discussion. If you're, you know, for, you know, people use this, these verses a lot when they're just talking with Jews about the Messiah. And using this as an example to show about why they need Christ. Because there's a coming tribulation. The brothers didn't know about it at the time. Of course, they had no idea that there's a famine coming. We're 20 years away from a famine, right? And Joseph will be, in a sense, their salvation during that famine. They they can't see any of that. but, But you're thinking, what does this mean to us today? And I think there's a couple things that we can take for this that are very applicable to 
today. Okay, very applicable. Now, Joseph in his 110 years of life, because he lived to be 110, never seems to take his eyes off of God or cease to trust him, right? Through adversity or even prosperity, right? Joseph will be loved, Joseph will be hated, he will be favored, he will be abused, he will be tempted, he will be trusted, he will be exalted, and he will be abased. And through that whole time, he never takes his eyes off God, he never ceases, excuse me, to trust God, he never complains, and he never compromises. Not once. And that's a great picture of faith in times right, of trouble that we need to have. We need to understand that when we go through times like this, when we think, what is going on? How come I've been put in this situation? That regardless of what we're going through, whether it be adversity or prosperity, whether we're being favored or abused, whether we're being tempted or trusted, exalted or abased, what do we need to do? We, we need to trust God. God says rejoice in all things. So we need to trust God in those moments and rejoice in those moments and not complain or not compromise our faith when we're in situations like that. Joseph understood that God was with him and God was using him for great things. You need to understand that too. No matter what you're going through, God is with you. And God is going to use you. He's going to work through you for his glory. Yet we have this problem. And the problem is, is that we often look into the future, however we look into the future, right? And we try to see what it holds. And we get scared. And we get confused, right? We turn on the news. We get depressed. We look at current events that are going on, right? The world is evil. Our government's corrupt and senile. We get depressed, right? Wars and rumors of wars. The whole world is a powder keg right now. Just, I wake up every morning wanting to know who's, going to, who's lit the match or if the match has been lit yet. Middle East specifically is a huge powder keg at the moment. Yeah. So we look at these things going on and we're like, man, it's, it's so scary and it's so confusing and it, we get anxious. But what does God's word tell us? Don't be anxious, right? It says don't be anxious about these things. Right? I mean, in the coming months, possibly before the end of this year, we may be going through some times that are the worst times that we've ever gone through in our lifetime. So I understand how fear and confusion concerning the future is troubling. But as God's words tells us, we have no reason to be troubled. None. God has given us his word. And his word says, what does it say? It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's what it says. It's as clear as day. As if he knew exactly what you were going to go through. And guess what he did? He did. He knows what you're going to be going through. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. But in some ways, there's a couple of things going on. Joseph, when he was talking about his dreams, was talking about God's word. Because those dreams were from God. And he's sharing God's word with his brothers who rejected it. They didn't understand it. They didn't want to understand it. It meant nothing to them. They just outright rejected it. And because of that, they just continued to hate Joseph who brought it. That's also a picture for you. Because those are the times that we're living in right now. We're living in times right now where you have God's word and God's word is prophetic and it tells you about what's going to happen and how it turns out. Exactly. And you have this. You know. You've, seen, you've read the end of the book, right? 
You, you know how it turns out? You know God wins, right? We are overcomers. We are more than victorious. We have our faith in Christ Jesus. But when you share God's word with people, the world's reaction may be very similar to Joseph's brothers, which is they're just going to reject it outright. They don't want to even try to understand it. It just seems confusing to them, and they don't really want to take that word from you. Just like a lot of people didn't want to accept it from Jesus. Right? Those who were in his hometown, for example, he's like, I can't go back to Nazareth and really preach because when I'm in Nazareth, they just say, we know who you are. You're the carpenter's son. Right? We remember you when you were a kid. We don't accept you as a prophet or a rabbi now. Right? So you get that sort of same response. But this is what God's word shows us. It shows us that God has a plan. It shows us that the future is, is you know, laid out for us. We, we know how it's going to unfold. Right? But yet when you explain these things to people, sadly, even within the church, when you say, well, let's go look at that. It's in the book of Revelations. I can talk about what things are going to look like. Like I tell you, I, I have someone, I've, I've mentioned this quite a few times, someone at work that I talk to who always comes back and sits down and says, man, we are in the tribulation. And I say, no, we're not. Right? But if you think we are, then you should understand what the tribulation is going to look like. Because if you think it's bad now, it's only going to be worse then. So we need to have a, a better understanding of those things. So we have God's word and it lays it all out for us, right? Yet when we tell it to some people, when we explain it to some people, it may seem as weird as Joseph's dreams seem to his brothers, right? What? Are you crazy? I'm not going to accept that. That's, that's nuts. There's got to be, it's got to be something different, right? So to them, you seem foolish. The word seems foolish. They don't want to accept it. And there are those who think that the word of God is foolish, right? And they hate those who speak it and they hate those who live by it. Just as the brothers hated Joseph, thought his dreams were crazy, right? They wanted to kill them. They wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery instead. Yet God was showing Joseph, right? God was giving these prophetic words to Joseph for a reason, this prophetic dreams to Joseph for a reason. And so as he gave them to Joseph, and through Joseph, therefore being related to the whole family, the whole family was hearing about the dreams, what was it showing them? Well, it was a prophetic glimpse into the future, and what it showed them was that uh, there was hope. That's what it showed them. Right? It showed them that God was looking out for them, that God was going to be with them, that God was going to provide for them that God was basically keeping his promises to them, right? That they'd be with them wherever they went. It showed them that there was hope. That showed them that God was with them. They would see them through these times of trouble, but they, they didn't want to accept the word yet. They didn't understand it. But that's what it showed them. It was a word of hope. And that's what we have. See, if we know the word, we understand what it says, and we haven't ourselves rejected it because it seems too confusing, or we don't understand it, then we have the, the hope that we can point people to. There is hope, and hope is found in nothing less, right, than Jesus. And we can show it to people. We can show them where the hope is. We can show them where the hope is. But you just have to understand that you will get a lot of responses like Joseph's brothers. 
or when they're just going to reject it outright because they don't understand it. They don't want to understand it. But it's important for us in our own walks not to do that. Because now is the time for you to have a good understanding of God's Word. Because there are things that we don't understand either. When we see events like, you know, Dale was bringing about, about how fast everything is happening right now. And the Bible describes them as, as birth pains. When we know these things, we can look at it and we can see exactly what they are. But if we don't quite understand these things, and we don't want to understand these things, because when we read those passages, they say, whatever, I don't get them, I don't understand them, I don't really want to focus on them then we don't get a clear picture of, of what's going on. And in a sense, in that way, what we're doing is then we're rejecting God's word. And, and we can't do that. You can't do that. You need to accept it. You need, to, you need to, to, to take God's word in to your heart. Even when you don't have a complete understanding, you have to trust God with it. That he will show you and grow you and let you know what it means. So you can understand what is you know, laying out what he's laying out for you. And that's what he's given you, which is a picture of hope. But many will reject it. They will. And, but this is what we have to understand. Though many will reject Jesus, you have to remember this. Psalm 118, it tells us, and Jesus even referenced, that this verse is even referenced, of course, in the New Testament. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So though Jesus was rejected, Jesus is the cornerstone of it all. And we know that. So we need to share that. There's a reason that when Jesus would teach, Jesus would often say, hear and understand. Because it's one thing for us to hear God's word. It's another thing for us to understand God's word. We need to do both. We need to hear it, and then we need to understand it. But understanding God's word means that you have to, it has to become more personal to you. Right? Understanding God's word it means to understand that it's living and active. Understanding God's word is to understand that within God's word there is hope, right? Understanding God's word is understanding that there is hope for the future, that there is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Understanding God's word is, is for us to take into our hearts, to take his word into our hearts. We can hear the word with our ears, but never take it into our hearts ever. Right? And for, so for us, for, in, for us in Christ, it is more important now more than ever, right? It's not time for us to, to reject or, or dismiss or ignore the things that we don't understand completely. It's for us to take it into our heart and bring it before God and trust in it and trust in his word, right? Now is the time to trust in God's word, even more so as the day approaches, and trust me, the day is approaching, right? To point out the hope that is found in Christ, to those who are searching for it right now in the darkness. Because there are those who are just ignoring the events that are going on right now and just, you know, just living their own day. They talk about it. It's like as in the days of Noah, people are just going about and living their life as in normal, even though during that whole time that took Noah to build that ark, he was a preacher of righteousness that entire time. It said, Noah, what are you doing there in your front yard? I'm building an ark. Why? There's a flood coming. You're crazy, Noah, right? So that entire time he's building that ark, he's preaching about what's coming. God's judgment's coming, and this ark is your salvation. It's the only way you can be saved, and no one accepted it, not one. They just went about their business and ignored the guy building an ark, right? The huge ark 
Just ignore that. Whatever. All right. Just ignore it. Well, it's not any different. People, there are people out there who are watching the same news that you're watching, look at the same events that you're watching, and are just choosing to ignore it. Whatever. Hasn't really affected the price of my latte. I don't care. Except it has, right? And when, and when you know, at the point where it's $300 to fill up your car with gas, maybe they'll start noticing. But they're just going to continue to ignore it. It's not the time to ignore things. But then there are those who see the signs and they're like, something is going on. But they don't have a complete understanding because they don't know God's word. But guess what you do? So that's where you come in. Right? That's where you come in. So you need to point people to the hope that's found in Christ Jesus, even though those people may just call you dreamers, just like they called Joseph a dreamer. That they may, they may even reject it. But we know the truth concerning God's word. It is salvation to those who believe. It is salvation to those who believe. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the power of God. You have it. It's in you. God is working through you to now wield it. Share it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that your word speaks through us that we are living testimonies to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we can share that and that we can be that light in the darkness. And I pray, Lord, it's that we understand the importance of, of knowing your word, of staying faithful to your word, of not compromising, of not backing down. Regardless of what we're going through, whether it be good or bad, we stay faithful to you, understand that you are working in us and through us. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you just continue to embolden us and grow us, draw us closer to you, draw our hearts, Lord, closer to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.